Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of current and classic horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews and discussions may include spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Flatlands, and we are heading up towards the mountaintop. We had set a thousand dollars for the day. Filming services. Discretion is appreciated. The yellow door. And realizing that no one knows I'm here. Hi. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't get scared. I'm assuming you're Aaron. Yeah. Aaron, Joseph, oh my god. Oh my god. This is gonna be a good day. So the reason I've hired you is because I have terminal brain cancer. And I want you to film me to make a video diary for my unborn son. You ready for this? Okay. Joseph! This is called an adventure. Woo-hoo! We don't know exactly where we're going. Woo-hoo-hoo! But I have a feeling. When you follow those feelings, great things can happen. Don't ever forget that. Joseph! <laughs> there was about two seconds there where it looked like you wanted to kill me. Joseph, I think I'm gonna head back. One drink, okay? Bottoms up. For today's discussion, I'm keeping the found footage conversation going with my pal Bernie, in which we take a look at Patrick Bryce and Mark Duplass's Creep series. In breaking down the psychological horror of both Creep 1 and Creep 2, both of which are streaming on Netflix, in which Mark Duplass plays a serial killer who baits people into documenting him on film, inevitably adding them to his collection of victims. So, without further ado, here's our conversation on both Creep and Creep 2. Bernie, welcome back to the show. Hey, I appreciate you having me, man. This is uh, very uh, two very interesting movies that, uh, that we have here. Yeah, I thought it would be fun to kind of keep our found footage conversation going. Last time you were on, we talked about The Blair Witch Project, which is very much kind of like the granddaddy of found footage films in a lot of ways. And I thought it'd be interesting to visit a more recent found footage film and one that I think shares some similarities to the Blair Witch Project, even though obviously it has a very different type of narrative that's not dealing with the supernatural. It's a much more grounded story, but I think the ways in which it was made shares some similarities with the Blair Witch Project. So I'm excited to talk with you about uh, Creep 1 and Creep 2. No, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people know Mark Duplass from the league and uh, him and his brother, from my understanding, they have like a, a production company. So they've had some, you know, a wide variety of films. But this was my first introduction to him as an actor in terms of like a, a horror type of a movie. It uh, he just he does a really good job, in my opinion, of of taking, you know, I think sometimes when we look at at actors, you know, um, Steve Carell, for instance, kind of comes to mind. It's hard for us to see him in, in movies and not think of Michael Scott. And I had a similar reaction initially where I thought, how am I going to look at a guy that was, you know, for all intents and purposes in the league, he was a complete and utter goofball. And now in this, he's supposed to be, you know, uh, some sort of a quasi sophisticated killer. 
And I think, I mean, he hits it out of the park, in my opinion. He does a really good job of completely eliminating that that sort of thought because of how, you know, as the title of the movie is, how creepy of an actor and of a character he is. Yeah, that's interesting. So you have the experience where you're going into the film with this background knowledge of him or this background uh, persona that he has in the league, which he was a regular in, I believe, right? Yeah, he was one of the main four or five cast members. Uh, there you go. So I went into the film and this was the first introduction to him. So I had a much different, I didn't have any expectations going into it. And so for him to pull it off as well as he does, and then to kind of learn more about him and experience more of his films after seeing this, it really makes it quite a remarkable performance, even more so than I had already thought it was, just because you kind of get the sense, I have the sense now of like this guy's wide range of, he can be the the silly, funny guy in the league or something to that extent, but then he can also do these roles in a thriller or a horror movie that are very grounded and it's it runs the gamut of being this kind of like very mild manner guy, but then he can go into humor, but then he can go in, be in, uh, intense and whatnot. And he's really is, I mean, Mark Duplass is like a treasure in this movie because he gives such an unhinged performance that runs a gamut of emotions and a range that is really surprising for what I believe is like his first foray into horror mm-hmm. and for him to be an antagonist and right out the gate making an impression. Mm-hmm. And I would say that he is so strong in this movie that it really does make this film probably one of the best found footage from a narrative or from a character standpoint, right? I mean, for a lot of found footage movies, it's for me at least, it's more about the ways they're able to convey scares through the medium and presentation of found footage. Mm-hmm. That's usually where I get my most enjoyment or I get the most sort of um, enjoyment, yeah, enjoyment out of this genre. It's not typically because of a specific character or a specific narrative. It's more so the overall experience and the way that you can maximize scares for the uh, unique presentation. Mm-hmm. Well, so, you know, I'd be curious to, to hear, you know, the movie is, it has a very, very strange opening. What was your thought on kind of that opening 10, 15 minutes? So I would be interested to have seen this movie at the time that it came out, which was 2014 for Creep, and I believe 2017 for uh, Creep 2. Mm. But I think I I only saw this movie like two or three years ago, and it's very interesting if it's kind of just the cognitive social awareness around like responding to uh, online ads and things like that, just kind of like random dropping in Craigslist type thing. I don't know. It's, I don't know if I'm too far removed from it, but maybe had I seen it in 2014, it would have been this thing where I'm like, oh, I guess this was just coming about. There's more people that are more trustworthy because nowadays, at least within like the people we know, if we ever mention somebody like, yeah, I'm going to do a Craigslist job for this random person I met, they'd be like making jokes the whole time about, oh, you're going to go get murdered basically, which <laughs> I guess 2014 was probably late enough that I guess the film to some extent is cognizant of that you know it's this scenario where people hear about oh you're going to respond to a craigslist ad you're probably going to get murdered or something and Mm -hmm. so to that extent like it kind of feeds into the gallows humor i guess of the entire concept of creep right i mean Mm -hmm. mark duplass's character joseph very much dabbles in gallows humor Mm -hmm. for a majority of the film or for long stretches of the film Mm -hmm. and so i guess the entire film as a whole like that whole premise is playing off of that to a certain extent 
No, absolutely. I mean, I when we were in high school, I used uh, I used Craigslist to sell like Xbox stuff. Um, but we were 15, 16 years old and like eBay wasn't something that was like heavily used at the time. So, yeah, I mean, to your point, I think 2014, 2015, I, I don't remember if like Facebook Marketplace was a thing yet, but it Craigslist definitely was kind of moving towards, it seemed like, uh, you know, I don't want to generalize it too much, but more nefarious kind of stuff was going on there rather than just like, here's a car, buy it from me. Um, so I think they definitely captured it in a good way that way. My thing with, you know, I'm the type of person when I watch movies, I feel like I'm in the like the character's shoes, so to speak. And have, like as soon as Aaron saw, uh, Aaron, the videographer that gets hired by Joseph, um, as soon as he goes up those stairs and he's knocking, there's no one there. He looks, you know, he walks back down and looks and there's an ax on a tree stump. I have alarm bells immediately, <laughs> right? You're in like a completely isolated place and that's the first thing you really see or prominent thing you really see. Um, I think the the character arc for Patrick is really interesting or rather it's it, it show goes to show how like good guys really do finish last in any kind of a medium where I mean he he really was trying to in a wide variety of, of uh, scenes he seemed to be someone that was trying to be friendly and helpful to uh, to Joseph where Joseph did not garner any of that you know helpful uh, helpfulness or politeness whatsoever i mean he's jumping out and scaring him half the time he's talking about very weird things and showing him like uh i forget what the uh, the mask that his peaches peaches the wolf mask that his dad purportedly made for him and like it just the there were so many different red flags that come up there, but Aaron looked past that because he was trying to find the good in Joseph. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I don't know about you, man, but if I meet somebody for the first time and their initial reaction is to hug me, unless it's like an old <laughs> grandma, I'm not really feeling that right there. Right. Um, you know, it just, that doesn't seem like a culturally necessary thing to do to start off a, a, an introduction. So I, I don't know. It, for me, it was half the movie was just kind of screaming at the, the screen going, what the <laughs> hell are you doing? Um, I, is that a kind of a similar reaction that you had with Aaron? Um, you know, I think it's interesting because Aaron's played by Patrick Bryce, like you said, who not only helped develop the story, but he also directs the film. And from what I, at least from what I know, like he is not a actor who's been in a lot of things, right? He's a director primarily. And so to have someone that is more of a novice in the role of the protagonist, I almost feel that like his novice ability and he does a fine job at facilitating the role of Aaron. But I think there's a certain level of naivete in that that really comes across in a way that presents him as just like a vessel who's there for a job he's willing to overlook certain things and he sells that so well that i almost don't find it to be like you said where it's like you're screaming at the tv telling him like you seriously cannot be not seeing these red flags type of thing because i think he captures such an uh portrayal of such an innocent person that you're in this scenario and it's like, hey, if I just look past this awkwardness or this weirdness, I'm going to get a thousand dollars. And I think that really is even more of a credit to 
uh, Mark Duplass's performance as uh, Joseph, where he's never so over, he's never overtly scary or raises an overt red flag until the very end of the movie, right? You see the axe there, but it's in a tree stump. So you could be like, well, yeah, he chops firewood. We're in the mountains. He's got a fireplace type thing. He never, and he gets very weird and he reveals a lot and gets very personal and he's kind of touchy feely, but he never takes it to a level that makes him completely unlikable or it never takes him to a place where you're like, well, I'm in legitimate danger right now. I mean, for a good first half of the film, that's never the case. And it kind of just highlights his ability to be weird, to be uncomfortable, but then to kind of draw you back in with this gallows humor or just kind of like, be, tr you feel that he's very genuine throughout all the interactions. You never feel like he's putting on a front, at least for the first half of the film, right? It's kind of like, oh, this is a very genuine person. This is a person that is dying, supposedly, and what, has like a very pure intentions and in why I'm here and why I'm filming him. And mm -hmm. I think the two of those relationships played against one another really make it so that way it sustains that ruse until we mm -hmm. start to like actually learn some reasons, the real reasons behind what is going on here. Right. I think to your point too, you know, looking back on it, um, they, you know, I think it's in the second act, but um, you know, probably like around the 30 minute mark, halfway through the, the film, they end up going to a river or like an area that has some sort of a, I forget the term that he used, but it had some, like the water had some sort of purification and healing effect. And he, uh, Joseph is taking Aaron like very deep into the woods. And again, your alarm bells as a, a viewer are going off, but Aaron believes him because again, he's trying to look at the goodness in at Joseph rather than the, the negative stuff. And he really does take him to a place that has like a heart shaped kind of rock structure, <laughs> um, which mm -hmm. Joseph mentions. And then they have like a, a relatively, you know, human moment there where, um, they're kind of not necessarily bathing together, but um, they're like washing each other off with the water and it's su supposed to mark off like washing the sins off each other in some kind of way, right? And purifying each other. And I think to that point, when that happened, then I think as a viewer, you start questioning, am I misunderstanding what I'm seeing about Joseph, right? And I think that really is the beauty of this film is it gives us enough red flags to be like holy shit get the hell out of here but also maybe joseph really is a cancer you know he's dealing with cancer his wife is about to give birth he doesn't know i don't know how anybody would act if you found out that the person that you're in love with is having a kid but you also have a debilitating cancer where you're going to be dead of it in a couple months as he purported to have right um so it I, I love movies that make you kind of rethink, even though there's not much of a reason to do that, because the the uh, evidence points very clearly to one thing. And I think we both agree with Occam's Razor. Sometimes the simplest uh, the simplest answer is the answer. Um, and I, I found myself a, a handful of times during the original Creep movie questioning if I really am giving joseph the benefit of the doubt or because the movie is called creep and i'm you know i'm expecting some kind of scary stuff to happen that i'm just not actually seeing the character for what he's worth um so again to your point i mean i think mark duplass does a really good job of this but also the character is just scary as, as freaking heck i mean <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know how 
you know, I don't know. I couldn't imagine anybody else doing the job that Mark Duplass did, did for Joseph and us. And now for a brief intermission. If you've been enjoying this episode of Daily Horror Habit, please take a moment to subscribe to the show on your preferred streaming platform or leave us a review on iTunes. And thank you for your continued support, and I hope you enjoy the remainder of today's horrifying episode. Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of just his wide range again of like emotions that he's able to convey at a moment's notice. So that way he goes at just as soon as he's on the precipice of almost taking this ruse or this persona of what he assumes a person would be like too far, he reels it mm-hmm. back in, right? As soon as it's about to get too intense, he's like, hey, we're, let's go for pancakes at this random place. And then mm-hmm. they just start, they're getting pancakes and it kind of like deflates the tension. And it really is this kind of roller coaster throughout the entire film, even once we get to the big reveal, which we'll get to in a minute. Like the tension is continu- continually roller coastering in a way that you are questioning the reality of what is actually happening. And I think that that's a really powerful thing to make the viewer ask themselves, right? Am I misinterpreting things? Is a character an unreliable narrator? Or am I making assumptions based on some of the facts that were given? And in terms of like you reference the title being creep is Mark Duplass the creep or is it something else? Right. I was almost thinking like the first time I saw a creep and I didn't know there was a creep too and I didn't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. I was like, I started to think like, well, is Aaron the one that is actually the creep? Mm-hmm. Is he the one that is making a big deal or, or has ulterior motives behind what is happening? And it's not Aaron. Aaron is just this awkward guy that's dying and contending with his own mortality. Mm-hmm. And it made me think like, is the creep then actually us? And is this the entire thing just like a commentary on like voyeurism or something like that? Mm-hmm. Are we the creep that's looking in on this very intimate moment between two people and making certain judgments about them or based on what we're given or based on just our own preconceived notions? And I think that that is a really powerful thing. Even in the end, it's much more reductive than that in reality, right? It ends up being Joseph is actually just a serial killer. But mm. I think the journey in getting to that very sort of, on paper, simplistic summary of the film, mm. it's more impressive than had we known that from the jump or had it not elicited these potential like multiple interpretations, which is something I go on a lot about. It's like you can present something and make something, but ultimately if you have enough ambiguity or doubt in getting there, it makes for a much more interesting conversation and a much more interesting journey in getting there. No, absolutely. And I mean, to your point about, um, you know, getting towards the, the kind of crescendo of this movie. So I think by the time that uh, Aaron can't find his keys, I think we, most people are under the impression that, okay, no, 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 Joseph really is a nefarious character somehow, or there's somebody else behind Joseph potentially um, that could be aiding in this. Um, I think when, I love the moment when Aaron, like, kind of pickpockets Joseph while he's passed out after, did he slip him some sort of pills? Was that what? what? I think, yeah, I think he said he put Benadryl in his whiskey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do that. Or something to that extent. Um, no, <laughs> but uh, when that happened and he picks up the phone and he runs into the restroom and he realizes the whole entire story is bullshit, right? The wife that he was that uh, Joseph purported to have is actually his sister. She's like, wherever you are, you need to get out of there. And he doesn't have the keys. I mean, 
I the the thing that's amazing about this movie again the scenery that they're in it's not like he can just run out and leave he's in the middle of the woods so it just creates like this other dynamic that again you're you're stuck in a place with a purported crazy person and you don't have a way of getting out and then you know I think the scene right afterwards he walks outside because uh, Joseph wasn't laying down in that uh, that like fireplace uh, kind of ledge anymore uh, and then he he walks in on him in the pitch black dark and Joseph's face and expression is completely different he's not blinking he's he says something about death and that's very ominous and then he just runs inside and puts on the what was the hat again sorry the uh peaches 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 yeah god i love that name um <laughs> uh that scene i i would be curious i mean obviously there's a lot of different scary moments in this but would you think that's scarier than the scene where uh aaron's in his own home and then he kind of moves and you see joseph in the doorway just staring at him or do you think that scene where um joseph's wearing peaches and kind of keeping him trapped uh against the doors is scarier for you i think that that scene is scary because of the scene that uh came before it and that scene that came before it, I think, is the most disturbing part of the movie, and which is uh, interesting considering that it's a scene where it's completely black and you just get subtitles of what's being said. It's mostly the contents of the conversation that these two people have together, where Aaron, and this is part of what makes the film's kind of like ramping up of intensity and kind of um, Joseph heightening everything that he's saying the longer the film goes on. Because again, if he starts right out the gate saying insane shit, mm -hmm. Aaron's an idiot for not leaving but again he has this very delicate balance and to see Aaron completely lose the balance the longer mm -hmm. the film goes on makes the film more and more terrifying the way that it's building up to the finale and I mean he makes he he tells a story about essentially like raping his wife which is terrifying because it's that scene where he's like can you turn the camera off and of course a good cameraman never turns the camera off they maybe might block it but it's still recording right and so he gives this horrifying, or it starts off as bizarre, where he talks about, like, oh, I share a computer with my wife, and there was, like, animal porn on it and something, and you're like, yeah. this is getting very fucking weird. And then he starts talking about, like, he put the mask on and breaks in and ties up his wife and then rapes his wife. And then he's, like, so nonchalant about it and just, just like, yeah, this is just, like, a story that I'm telling you. is so fundamentally disturbing on every level that... As soon as you have that association with the peach fuzz mask, especially when he introduces it earlier in the film and you're like, yeah, it's a dumb guy in a mask. Now that you have that context and then we revisit the mask, it gives mm -hmm. it this heightened tension that is it gives it applies this just disturbing context to the mask and what it represents and what he represents. And you realize, OK, this is he's been putting on a ruse, essentially like a mask to hide mm -hmm. his true self. And mm -hmm. that is the terrifying realization where initially my theory was like, oh, well, maybe it's Aaron who's the creep. Maybe we're the creep. It's like, no, pretty sure that uh, Joseph is the creep here. And that's undeniable. But something that I really, really love that Patrick Bryce does as a director is, is that he takes a really fucked up moment like that. And then he's able to apply humor to it because what's the next line of dialogue as soon as uh, Joseph tells that story, he's like, Aaron did I freak you out with my rape story? Like just following up with that is just a very kind of just like 
dry wit or dry humor moment and you're just like uh yeah what the fuck do you think that's the only reason why that's funny is because you're like uh yeah you just told me some horrendous shit of course it freaked me out and it reveals like his character's awkwardness it's not so much the line that makes me mm-hmm. laugh it's just his character not realizing or just being so incredibly awkward and fucking messed up that he even thinks to ask that because the answer is so obvious I mean, I you hit it on the nail on the head for that. Uh, I I will say, again, there were a number of different moments that made me kind of scream at the TV. The thing <laughs> that I just didn't understand from Aaron's perspective, and I, I get like, you know, we're kind of moving past. He he runs at uh, at Joseph while he's wearing the peaches mask. After that, right, um, and then we cut to. Uh, if I remember this correctly, we cut to Joseph, uh, a frame of Joseph, basically, or video rather of him, like carrying three trash bags mm-hmm. and starting to like dig a hole. Yeah. And again, we're looking at this from a point of view of this is actually happening. And we're thinking, or excuse me, this is a live kind of thing that we're seeing. And we're assuming that Aaron is inside those bags where then we cut to Aaron get, you know, is actually still the the director, so to speak, or is still behind the camera. Um, And now instead of it being focused on Joseph, it's now back to focusing on him. I really appreciated that kind of change of pace because rather than focusing on Joseph's craziness, we now get an insight into kind of, I guess the best way I could put it is the naivete of, of Aaron. You get a disc that has that and then you get like a giant box with no return address and it's like a bear and a knife and i think there was another disc in there um the necklace is inside the uh yeah the necklace right right that says j and a or something like that with a heart right (laughs) it's like all of those things i mean you don't have a friend that you could sleep on their couch for a night or so like i just it's it was <laughs> was mind-boggling that he stayed at his house through all that um but again the what you talk about the steps in which the escalation occurs and i also think that the the length of the film is perfect we've we've had these discussions before where we've had two two and a half hour movies that if they were 30 minutes shorter, we would appreciate them more. I think this movie hit it out of the park in every kind of way, in particular with the length of it, because they could have easily elongated it. Um, but this was, I think this was under 90 minutes, if I'm not mistaken, right? It was like an hour yeah, 20 or I, something like that. I think it's, uh, I think it's under 80 minutes, in fact. And I agree totally. I mean, the second film is only a handful of minutes longer than the first film, but they both are paced so well in terms of like what the, it's one of the very rare found footage films that I feel is so cognizant of what it is and the type of story it's telling and the amount of time that you want to coexist in that world. Because if they had stretched out and this was my initial fear when I was like, Oh, Aaron is not in the trash bags. Aaron's watching a video of Joseph lugging those trash bags and a, essentially like burying a vic- another victim out in the hills, I was like, oh, is this going to be another 45 minutes of whatever this is, this new direction they're going? But it doesn't feel like that, which is fantastic because I think that scene is only 25, or after that, it's like 25 more minutes or something to that extent. But it's able to change the scenery. 
not have to reestablish the new setting. They don't introduce any new characters. Mm -hmm. And they're able to make this new environment scary in a way that you don't have him running through his house. You have these very kind of stagnant shots, whereas the first half of the film is very fluid in that he's following somebody. Mm -hmm. Now he's by himself, and they're still able to use the found footage and convey the rest of the story in a way that is much more um, isolated, and the camera doesn't move as much because it's just on him, and it's more capturing an entire area. And -hmm. the way that they're still able to make that tense and frightening is fantastic because again like that that becomes something where it avoids the usual found footage tropes of like lots of shaky camera and lots of kind of just like people running and screaming and stuff which there's very little of that and so that kind of in talking about the third act of the film i guess i'm curious do you think that this is a good utilization of found footage like is this a film that could only be told in found footage or what is what are the benefits of creep being told within the found footage uh, medium? So there are definitely moments where it's shaky, but I think it's a very big contrast in the way that the Blair Witch was shot in that I think they utilized the shakiness to amplify uh, the horror that was going on in the Blair Witch, or I think it's it's honestly the complete opposite of the spectrum for creep where the scariest moments i mean obviously the when joseph jumps out and scares aaron you know a half a dozen times that's that's kind of a shock factor but the scariest moments happen when the camera is completely still whether it's the ending whether it's uh when joseph is sleeping or you know certain shots of them together um i think I think this movie really, I'm sure they could have done it in a way where it's not a found footage flick, but I think the way that they shot it, incorporating a different type of a lens, so to speak, into found footage, um, I would would obviously put this in the same subgenre since it is a found footage film, but the way that it's shot, um, forget like, you know, the narrative and stuff like that, it's very, very different. It's almost completely unique, I think, in the found footage Um, genre because it is it's not relying on the shakiness of the camera and those kind of accessory things it's really relying more of the 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 character arc um in my opinion i don't think we don't we don't see that typically in in these types of movies yeah i mean in revisiting creep one and creep two i think that creep one is definitely one of probably my favorite found footage film from a narrative perspective it's not so much that it's capturing the scares necessarily in a way that is revolutionary or even all that strong for the found footage genre, because a majority of the film is just about two people having a conversation right? or it's about recording somebody's movements in a way that is not um, as fluid. Like I said, it's not somebody running through the woods or something to that extent, which I really appreciate in terms of just the way that everything's framed. And in terms of comparing it to the Blair Witch Project, something that I was uh, interesting to learn was that this film was largely improvised for a lot of the dialogue. It went off of much like the Blair Witch Project. They had this basically an outline. They had like a 30 page outline or something to that extent. And then they improvised conversations around that. And that is the biggest comparison I think I can make or the biggest similarity to the Blair Witch Project in that creep feels very fluid and organic. It feels like you're a fly on the wall capturing two characters conversing and 
That's why the narrative is so strong. And I mean, it helps that Mark Duplass gives a fantastic performance. And as a whole, it feels more engaging and I feel more invested in it than I do just a bunch of people like running around and screaming, which unfortunately has been my experience with a large number of found footage films. Not all of them, but I feel that this film, while the found footage element doesn't necessarily heighten the scares, it conveys this particular story in the best way possible and in a way that I think really makes it more engaging than something like the Blair Witch Project. Well, no, I won't say that, like the Blair Witch Project, but more engaging than maybe your run-of-the-mill found footage. I felt more engaged with this than I did um, as Above, So Below, like we talked about. Mm -hmm. Whereas that film, I appreciated like the claustrophobic setting and everything like that and how the scares really play to that strength of that setting. But in this, I'm more taken with how invested I am as these people as these characters as people, right. which is not something, again, that I attribute to a great deal of found footage films. And uh, that's, for me at least, is what makes this hold up so well. Mm -hmm. Well, I think uh, we would be remiss by not mentioning, the, kind of focusing too uh, much on the ending in the sense that I think if the ending wasn't as good as it was, I wouldn't appreciate this film for what it is. Um, I, again, not to beat a dead horse on this, but I was screaming basically at the point <laughs> watching him go to the, the, the lake or whatever it was a river that, uh, Joseph, he had sent, you know, four additional tapes. It seemed like, and this was the last one saying, I just want to apologize and, um, you know, just have a man to man conversation in a very open area. And that last scene felt like it lasted 10 minutes in retrospect. I think, I think I timed it at like under three minutes, but it really like that entire vibe They they did a phenomenal job setting it up. It hits on every single point that both Aaron and Joseph are as characters where Aaron is thinking, okay, I have this, my phone set to 911 on speed dial and I'm filming myself and all this stuff. And you're in a public place that's great but joseph is completely out of his fucking mind and <laughs> see every single one of those characteristics on, on display in that last two three minutes of the film where you know aaron looks around sits down he's just taking in the the scenery and joseph you know walks up behind him in that uh you know kind of a burly coat pulls out the peaches mask and then you see him kind of slowly. I didn't see originally if he walked up, uh, you know, holding the the axe or if that was somehow in his coat. But you kind you very clearly see it kind of come down to his legs and picking mm -hmm. it up. And you're just, you know, again, I I love movies that make me like freak out like that because you're invested at that point, right? And you are emotionally invested into the character in this case, Aaron surviving. And you've learned very freaking quickly that that's not going to happen at all. Um, and I think that was a that was probably the best ending that this could have had to finish the first movie. W would you have agreed to that, or would you have preferred Aaron survive somehow? No, I definitely prefer this ending in that we find like we know at this point that Joseph is not only a stalker, but we assume that he is a killer, right? Mm -hmm. And so. It's a testament, once again, to Mark Duplass's performance where he's able to garner enough sympathy from Aaron in the audience that you can almost half believe what he's saying in this tape, where he sends him one last tape. He's like, 
Hey, listen, I'm done. I broke into your apartment. I planted one more tape. I'm not going to fuck with you anymore. I just want to have a conversation with you and apologize face to face. And while neither of us would ever agree to that, right. at the same time, like you can half understand why Aaron, the character, would, right? Because Mark Duplass is such a master manipulator in this, being Joseph. And I get what you mean about that scene and how you, that's the only moment in the film where you're like, want to scream at your TV for me because it's one of those things where you know the character's fate before they do, mm -hmm. which makes that three minute scene feel like it's 15 minutes long. It feels excruciating that wait mm -hmm. and waiting for that big blow to finally happen, especially when you see him drop the ax by his feet and then he puts the peach fuzz mask on and then he sneaks up and then he just whacks him in the head once so much so i just threw my pen that i was holding <laughs> and i mean i'm excited to talk about creep what can i say mm -hmm. but in terms of just that whole final act of the film it does such a great job of again establishing that joseph is not only insane but that he is in control the entire movie and so you can look past his awkwardness you can look past him breaking down at certain points you can look past his ruse but at the end of the day like no matter what range of emotions he is uh currently displaying he is somebody that is in control the entire movie and i really love that there's one scene when aaron is sleeping and he's leaves the camera on recording himself and the camera just gets lifted up while he's sleeping yeah. and at that moment you're just like Yo, all bets are off. Like, I hope Aaron makes it out of this because it doesn't seem like it right now. Mm -hmm. And so to see somebody have that level of control and not strike when their victim is the most vulnerable further makes that entire character's persona and their actions that much more terrifying because he's essentially just playing with this person Yeah. because he could have killed Aaron whenever he wanted to, basically. Mm -hmm. Even when they went to the um, the nature hike at the beginning of the film. He could have just thrown him off of a cliff if he wanted to, right. and he would have died more than likely. Mm -hmm. Or he could have killed him when he went to go get the peach fuzz mask. He could have grabbed the axe then. Like he has all of these moments, mm -hmm. but it's almost like you're watching Nat Geo and like an, a predator's playing with their prey before it eats it, right? Yep. And that's essentially what Joseph does the entire film. And I really think that that's powerful, and it speaks to not only the performance, but also just how fucking insane that character is when we get the epilogue afterwards. Mm -hmm. And we see the video of Joseph killing Aaron at the lake or the pond or whatever. And then you realize that it's Joseph watching a recording of that murder. And for me, that's a profound moment because it shows we actually don't know the timeline for anything that's happening. Mm -hmm. That could have been something that happened five minutes before he pressed play on the tape. It could have been something that happened five years ago. It could have been happened, something that happened last week. Right. And for me, that's frightening because it makes me realize, like, again, nothing that we've watched, you can actually, like, trust. Mm -hmm. I feel I feel manipulated in that moment because it's like, oh, there's some meta stuff going on here. Mm -hmm. We were actually in another character's shoes, like you said. You said for found footage, you put yourself in Aaron's shoes, right? Mm -hmm. And so now we've actually been in the antagonist's shoes the entire movie. Mm -hmm. And to learn that is, it feels like violating to a certain degree, obviously not to get too too, uh, too out there with that, but it's like, it feels to a certain extent like you're sitting down to watch a movie. You have certain expectations. And as soon as that sort of like general viewing expectation is uh, disrupted or challenged, like for me, that feels violating in a good way. It feels like, oh, they realized that I was going to make certain assumptions mm -hmm. and basically be like, well, we're going to turn those assumptions of yours on their head 
and present something to you in a manner that you weren't expecting, which I love. Right. I mean, the very, very end of that, um, when he puts that disc into his cabinet and he's on the phone with, I think it was Billy or something like that, his next victim. And you see it's, you know, three, four rows of tapes like that and discs. And you're just like, you know, again, to your point, did we just watch something that was from five minutes ago or is he just been throwing, you know, one video after another on his DVD player and like looking at his collection of, of killings in that sense. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I enjoyed creep. Like you said, creep too. I, I didn't give enough credit originally when I watched it. Um, but I, I, you know, after kind of thinking about it more, especially with the way that it trans transferred from the first movie, or I guess, you know, kept on the story from the first movie, we go from, you know, Joseph essentially being the, the villain to, he is not actually the creepiest person in the second movie. Um, maybe you disagree with me on that. I mean, obviously he kills people, but, um, going into creep two, you, the first thing we see, instead of it being Mark Duplass, it's this woman who's, I, I, what was the the found footage like show that she was doing on YouTube? She basically like has a, fa she has this series where it's her applying to different Craigslist jobs that she uh, responds to. Mm -hmm. And then it's her basically recording her experience doing these weird jobs. Like there was one guy that was just super lonely. So she just hangs out with this middle-aged guy. Another guy like wants to be coddled like a child, which is like weird, but it's basically her recording this act, this uh, character, Sarah, who's played by Desiree uh, Akavan. And it's basically her just kind of like going through the motion. It's kind of like this American life, right? Mm -hmm. Where she's highlighting people that have lived different ways of life or they're into different things that kind of like stray from the norm. Mm -hmm. And so that setup I think is fantastic for Creep 2 mm -hmm. because basically it's the same type of concept that somebody responding to Joseph, who's now adopted the name of Aaron. Mm -hmm. He just basically keeps adopting the names of previous victims and having just that little twist on the premise, right? It's about somebody that is there again, responding to a job offer that he's posted, but there's like this web persona background to it now, which I think is interesting because again, it's a small wrinkle that seems insignificant but it makes sense why she's so invested in this. I think that is the one thing from the jump that I appreciate about Creep 2 more than Creep 1 is that Aaron's just there for money, right? It's kind of like very thinly veiled why you would stick through it. Oh, I want $1,000 or whatever. But with Sarah, it's not even so much about the money. It's more about her wanting the experience of this very weird story. And you have to give up a little bit of your suspension disbelief like, a female going into these weirdo dudes houses and putting herself in some potentially pretty hairy situations. If we're going to let my, uh, my cynical nature kind of show through, like probably not the smartest idea, but in terms of the film itself, right? It makes sense why she's putting up with so much more than somebody else would. And she finds her breaking point a lot sooner than, uh, Aaron does in the first film. But I think that, her character is so fascinating because where the first film, it was kind of just like Aaron is this guy that's there for a job. He's going to put up with a lot so that he can get the money. 
this girl is there or this woman is there because she wants the weird story behind this. And so it kind of flips Mark Duplass's character Aaron on its head in that he's never encountered somebody that will put up with so much weirdness mm -hmm. that he can almost go the full 24 hours needed to get paid and not kill the person probably. And so that's the element of Creep 2 that I did not give enough credit initially the first time I watched it, I don't know, a handful of years ago. No, absolutely. And I think we'd be remiss not to mention the very beginning opening. I believe it's Aaron and Dave uh, who are sitting uh, in, I forget, I think it's in Aaron, Mark Duplass's character rather. Um, I'm sure some of the, the listeners are going to be a little confused by Aaron from the first creep being Mark Duplass's character uh, or character name in the second movie. But essentially the the trajectory of Mark Duplass's character going from at the very beginning of Creep, we are unsure again of what we're getting ourselves into to now we see Mark Duplass's character is basically, you know, again, to your point, uh, he's toying with these people. He was sent, you know, he met Dave at a coffee shop, I believe it was. And then soon after Dave started getting these very weird videos and at one point, you know, the the opening takes, I think, 10 minutes at most. Um, and he asks him a question like, don't you think it's strange that you started getting these as soon as we started to become friends? And you can tell Dave's expression completely fucking changes. And again, to as a viewer, you're like, well, I, I know that he's capable of killing somebody, but we're five minutes into this movie. Like, is it? this is how it's going to start. And yeah, absolutely. It does. He cuts <laughs> with a, uh, a knife and he bleeds out right next to him while uh, Mark Duplass's character is just eerily looking at him and just, you know, okay, I guess I got to clean this shit up. Like, so it just, you know, the, the, uh, I guess you could say the, the duality of that in terms of, where we see what Sarah's doing versus what we see what what Mark Duplass's character just did, it kind of comes to a head when she sees that that posting, um, and then I, I think within the first twenty minutes of them interacting with each other, uh, Mark Duplass's character gets naked essentially, just starts hanging dong. Yeah, and then Sarah, as I think guy or girl you'd be freaked out about you just interacting with someone for the first time and them dropping their you know their schlem out she gets naked and he i i rewatched this particular point um just because it was weird to me if you're in mark duplass's character right he told you a story where as you kind of mentioned he essentially raped his wife but now, or quote unquote, his wife, which we actually now don't, obviously we don't know that's a real story in total because he doesn't have a wife. But if that is somehow real in some kind of perspective, right? There's nothing about him that would indicate he does not have the capacity to actually do that. Right. But the thing for me that, and obviously we learn more about his character um, as as. De uh, Sarah and Mark Duplass character get closer together but if you'll notice in that scene when she gets essentially naked he zooms right onto her face 
because it seems like he's uncomfortable with her body rather than her being uncomfortable with his. And I think that was the beginning of the dynamic change that he kept wanting to arouse a scare out of her and she just wasn't having it. She seemed very mellowed out about it for until she gets to uh, his bathroom and she's like talking to the camera and being like every fucking red flag that I have is going off. But this is exact, you know, uh, RIP to Dennis Green. But he said, this is what we play for. Right. This is exactly what she was trying to get. She walked in and she hit the jackpot, but that jackpot is obviously capable of killing her in that sense too. So um, it's it's a very eerie beginning and middle. And again, to your point, I don't know. We, we know that Mark Duplass's character is a creep, but as the movie continues, we also start to get a pretty darn good indication that Sarah is a pretty big creep as well. And it's just, it's so weird to see. And again, this is a credit to Mark Duplass as a, as a character actor, because it comes off as so real, but he doesn't know what to do because he is in a place where he's consistently trying to scare, but then she ends up scaring him in a way. And that gets him to like her more. Whereas she is just there again, to your point, it's not uh, like a position where Air was where he's trying to make money and get out of there. She's genuinely trying to learn more about him, whether you know he's a purported serial killer or not. It's just a good case study of there are fucking weirdos out there. And so he hits the point of like what her YouTube show is supposed to be, but also, um, you know what what is out there for people that are are looking for this kind of weird stuff and and she illustrates it very well it seems absolutely and i love the setup for the sequel right it could have been so easy just to have it be oh just another victim but to change the victim persona and also to change the antagonist persona to a certain extent because in that cold open which i love where we have yet another victim and then Mark Duplass is feigning friendship with this person and then he slits his throat basically and kills him, bleeds him out. He reveals that he's like in a midlife crisis, that he's falling out of love with his work. And I think that is a very interesting persona for a serial killer to adopt in this idea like, oh, maybe I'm at my end. And I think he reveals he's killed 39 people to this point. So we know that this takes place after the events of Aaron being killed. And so... At the same time, though, we still don't have a clear timeline of when he started and when he ended. And I love that at his point of crisis where he's at a midlife crisis with his work, he is finally given somebody that he could view as a pupil, essentially. Mm -hmm. Almost somebody that he could train because she's so weird or she's so down for his weirdness. Mm -hmm. And you feel in this film, I feel more so than in Creep 1, that he purposefully is going out of his way to escalate things earlier on in the film. Mm -hmm. He's like, he didn't get naked with Aaron mm -hmm. what, and the point, and he's almost completely uninterested in the fact that she's a female other than in the later portion of the film, he mentions like, Oh, I never made out with the girl. Cause I was in an insane asylum and I never had time to acclimate uh, socially with other people, but still like it never, fe he, if he wanted to, and if we believed that he has the capacity for what he described doing to his wife in the first film, mm -hmm. 
there's every opportunity that he could have done that in this film. Right. But he never does. Even when the knife comes out in the end during the reveal, it never takes that sadistic sexual angle. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost as like, for me, I interpreted him getting naked in front of her early on was like, well, if she bolts, I'm just going to kill her. Mm-hmm. And so that almost is like her first te- test to see if she can hang kind of with my weird, with my serial killer brand of weirdness. If I'm going to drop dong and she bolts, she can't hang. So then she has to die. And so to see her be given these milestones essentially that are testing her and to see her vault over them with relative ease, it really does show that like he has to adapt and he's finally met his match after 39 other people he's killed. Mm -hmm. I've finally met the one person that is going to make me evolve or it's going to be my end. Mm -hmm. And that's really interesting in exploring the narrative of Creep 2. And it does feel much like in Creep 1, it felt very organic in terms of like characters that were interacting with one another. It felt very natural the way that they were. And I mean, it was improvised, so that's going to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. But this film feels like an organic continuation of Creep and evolution into Creep 2. It doesn't just feel like another videotape. This one has a weight to it that has a sense of finality to it, whether they ended up making a sequel to this or not. Like the antagonist dealing with their own mortality and the direction that they want to take their life is something that I think is very interesting in this scenario that makes for a more or it makes for a sequel that is more interesting than you would think it would be. Right. It never kind of reverts to a lot of the tropes early on from the first film or a lot of retreadings and the retreadings from the first film into this are very Mm self-aware and they're done in the name of promoting this idea that sarah is not like his other victims Mm -hmm. because when he introduces the peach fuzz mask she's like oh it's an adorable mask it doesn't bother her when he starts jumping out and screaming at the camera she doesn't move or she doesn't react Mm -hmm. and she's like okay are you done kind of thing where it scared the shit out of aaron in the first film And so everything is done in service of Sarah's character and evolving her in a new direction, which evolves the plot and evolves the antagonist, which is Aaron played by Mark Duplass in this film, which I love. Mm -hmm. And I think it gives seeing the way that Mark Duplass's character kills Dave with ease at the very beginning in the cold open versus how he's acting around Sarah in, you know, even towards the very end of the film. I mean, I think, uh, you know, within the first day of them hanging out, he says, I'm not going to kill you within 24 hours or something like that. And she alludes to that when they're having a conversation while he's drinking wine. He goes, now, why would you bring that up? That could only get you in trouble. But implicitly, though, I think that he wasn't going to hurt her up until they got to a point at the very end where she seemed to be almost challenging him to do it right they're like running around outside she scared him a couple of times she's really kind of flipped the dynamic completely on its head and now it seemed like he he almost needed to kill her um, and, you know, I think one of the reasons why he originally hired her, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he said that he had killed 39 people. It was his 40th birthday and he didn't really feel like that would be the, like he, he was lost. He was having like a midlife life crisis almost. And so the idea 
at the end that she almost killed him essentially or we think that she kills him and he would have been his own for like on his 40th birthday or for his 40th birthday he's the 40th victim of the whole thing that would have been somewhat poetic um and i don't know can i jump to the end on this one yeah let's jump let's get into it the ending i I actually enjoyed the ending of the second movie more than I enjoyed the first mm-hmm. because it Me too. it creates this scenario where again, you know, uh, I, f- I forget the the where the genesis of this phrase, but if you're losing in chess, you can either try and make a move to compensate or you can flip the board and just create mm-hmm. a new game. And he seemed to flip the board and create a new fucking game. I mean, she, uh, you know, he wanted to kill both of them in like a Romeo and Juliet-esque way. She gets away. He stabbed himself and then stabs her. And then he throws her into the, the, the hole that he dug, you know, that he thought would be romantic. But he decides he actually doesn't want to die. And then you see... I don't actually think you see her climb out of the hole, but you see her slowly walking up to him behind with the camera and hitting him in the head with the uh, shovel. Mm. A, beautiful poetry in terms of like <laughs> the contrast between this movie and the first movie, because that's obviously what Mark Duplass's character did to the original Aaron. But more importantly, when we actually see the camera like start up, and it's uh, New York City, and he's fall. The the camera person is following her now, and now, like I think, the very very end of it was, he was looking at her on a subway or on a bus, and he started doing that Peach's whistle, like that little mm-hmm. tune that he does, and yeah. he just slowly kind of pans her eyes towards him, and that's how the movie ends. It's one fucking phenomenal directing. Um, I I love that. But two, it does leave open the potential. I don't know how you'd feel about this. I'd be interested to to hear about it. But it does leave the potential that there's a third movie out there um, where they could have a, you know, not to make it too dramatic, but a final battle, so to speak. Um, Do do you would you be open to a third movie or do you think it it where it left off is good enough for the, the the arc of the film itself? So I think that it's a perfect ending because it leaves the door open, right? Mm. They can run with the idea of continuing this narrative or they can even pull back. And I think that they had been taught, their plan is to do a third film. Like that's always been their plan and they've stalled on that. And I had read that I think Mark Duplass said they were interested in doing a prequel or something that explored his background more. And I'm more interested in a film that continues after this because it shows the continued evolution of this serial killer. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that the second film does really well is we get more background on him and he gives little bits of information where he talks about being institutionalized and being treated for things and then being released mm-hmm. and how he's cut off from his family. And then he had the freedom then to become what he becomes. And for me, that's very interesting mm-hmm. in the way that they give us these little breadcrumbs that never feel like exposition dumps. We're never given an overabundance of, here's my life story, here is what happened. But what's so great is is that Mark Duplass from the first film to the end of the second film sells the character so well 
that we really still cannot believe anything he says. Yeah. Even the amount of people he says he's killed. Mm. This could be his potentially his second victim if he wanted it to be, right? The only evidence, and it's other than, I guess that falls apart a little bit when you think about all the tapes that are shown in Creep 1. But I mean, in terms of it, we only have evidence of two people that he has one person that he's killed, one person that he's potentially killed. Mm. And it's more about his characters being an unreliable antagonist that's giving us information constantly. Mm -hmm. So I think the second film ends in such a perfect way that, yeah, we could get a third film and I would be open to that because I think that that creative team of Patrick Bryce and Mark Duplass could come up with a continued narrative to take whatever name he adopts next. I don't think he's going to get far with Sarah, but we'll see like which victim's name he adopts next because we'll see if Sarah comes into play. I think that would be an interesting angle to take, but more so, I just want to see them continue to use the found footage format to continue this story. Because again, it is, I would go so far as to say this is my favorite character narrative driven found footage film because of how smartly utilized the format is for that. A majority of it is just conversations between two people. And it's not this sort of like overly fluid capturing what it's like to be in their shoes. It's more capturing what it's like to be in the room with two people or to be in an environment with two people. Yeah. And that's an element of the film that I love so much. And it kind of highlights how remarkable it is that it's mostly improvised. Again, this idea that the two people are giving two genuine performances and two, having a genuine conversation and it's not scripted to the T, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's something that sticks with me and it makes me hopeful for another one. But at the same time, it's so full circle from the first film to the second film that if we never get that third creep film, mm -hmm. I'm okay with that because what we got is pretty phenomenal. Yeah, no, I, I'd agree. And, um, you know, again, I think the the acting was phenomenal in this in both movies. Um, I, I think the, the choice of who played these characters was phenomenal. Um, I definitely think this is the more underrated type of horror thrillers that are out there for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, again, it's one of those that I think it's funny when I was looking at the breakdown on like Google movie ratings or whatever that comes up, they're either all f uh, five stars or they're all one star. And it's one of those things where I look at it and it's just like, I understand people that this does not click with. Mm -hmm. I don't obviously agree with a one star rating for anything that is remotely as good as this, obviously. But at the same time, I understand that divide, right? Because people that are here for found footage have a certain idea of what it is based on other mainstream found footage films. And that's fine. And there's that experience, which is very supernatural jump scare heavy. And then there's something like this that takes the genre and applies a sort of psychological character driven aspect to it. And for my money, I'm much more interested in watching something like creep, watching something like creep Two, mm -hmm. rather than I won't even throw out a name because I'm not trying to knock other found footage films, but it's more so that the, in the, vision that they had for the type of horror story they wanted to tell with this format capitalizes on it so well because at the heart of it it's capitalizing on or it's capturing rather two people having conversations that grow increasingly disturbing mm. until one major act of violence at the end of it mm. had this movie been from the first 25 minutes joseph reveals that he's a killer in creep one then the whole rest of the movie is him chasing aaron around the woods or chasing him around an apartment which is not interesting to me. It's kind of like, 
I started our conversation by comparing it to the Blair Witch Project. Blair Witch Project is very few moments of actual supernatural. If anything, there's nothing supernatural in it. It's all implied. Mm -hmm. And what I was so impressed with about the Blair Witch Project is that that film focuses more on the character relationships. You feel like a fly on the wall or a fly on the tree listening to a conversation between three people that know each other intimately. And so for me, that's more interesting. And when something is more discussion focused, it's going to have more static capturing of that found footage uh, format presentation. And it's not just the sort of running around with shaky camera that some people lament or don't lament the genre for. And for me, that is what makes Creep such a compelling piece of uh, like discussion based found footage. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, I mean, I totally agree with everything you said. And I think uh, the the best way to, to end this is uh, kind of quoting what you just said. And I think it's very relevant to, to our conversations. It's it's two people having a conversation until an act of violence occurs. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you very well hit the nail on the head with that one. Well, you know, man, if I, I've had you on as much as I had, it's bound to happen. But uh, <laughs> but uh, but as always, man, hey, I'm looking forward to uh, to talking horror again with you in the future. And I'll be interested to see maybe I don't know what we're going to talk about next time I have you on. But uh, if we keep the conversation going with found footage, I'm looking forward to it even more so after this one. No, absolutely. We'll, we'll avoid the violence as much as we can. <laughs> you know, we'll keep pushing it, man. I need daily content. So we'll keep pushing it until uh, we grow sick of one another. Absolutely. But hey, thank you again for having me on and uh, love, love the work that you're doing. Keep it up, man. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow the show on Instagram at Daily Horror Habit and on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod for episode updates. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you guys next time.